see you all this morning and welcome to our viewers online. Um, Amber was telling me, she was showing me data from uh, all the people who view us through Facebook and only 40% of those people are from Fergus Falls. And I found that fascinating. Like we even have an international presence and I was looking at the list of countries uh, that, that watch us online through Facebook and uh, apparently there's a few people in the Philippines who are watching. <laughs> I'm like, I wonder if there's somebody I know, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so hello, all of you people around the world watching us at Life Church here in Fergus Falls. The weather yesterday was amazing. Um, I felt like I was back in Florida. Uh, I was just really uh, grace from the Lord. So, all right, I want to begin with a story. So a friend of mine, a pastor, uh, he started out in ministry well. He was a very good teacher, a good preacher. And he had a way of bringing the Bible to life, explaining it in fresh ways, that, um, new ways that people could understand it. He could teach in such a way that would help you see Scripture with fresh eyes in a way you hadn't seen it before. He was also very caring, a really good shepherd. Everybody felt loved and cared for by him. And there was another side to my friend. Some church leaders heard a rumor uh, about some of the ways that he was spending his time outside the church. Someone saw him at a party drinking alcohol. Someone else thought they'd seen him partying with a group of people late into the night. They're pretty sure that there was a prostitute at the party and several other people that uh, maybe the pastor shouldn't be hanging around with. And it was pretty clear uh, that the prostitute knew the pastor. She gave him a big hug. So the church leader who saw all this was floored. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. So... What should be done with a pastor like that? Get rid of him? Or maybe at least sit down with him, talk with him about how important it is to not be seen hanging out with these kinds of people? What would people in the church say? What would people in the community say? This was a small community. You know how people talk in small communities. I wonder if anyone hearing this would think to encourage him to keep doing what he's doing. Spend more time with people like that. Maybe even take some others from the church with him to these parties. Well, maybe you guessed it. My friend's name is Jesus. And these are true stories. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. I'm pretty sure he had some himself. And no, I don't think the argument holds water that wine that he made was unfermented grape juice. I've read that argument. And the party Jesus attended was at Matthew's place. It's described in Mark Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It'll come up on the screen. 
So it says, then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So Jesus is hanging out with some pretty unchurchy people. In modern day terms, it'd be like running into Jesus at a home where he's sitting there surrounded by empty beer bottles, maybe some poker chips. You listen to the music playing in the background and it's hardcore rap. Obviously, the Pharisees were scandalized when they saw Jesus hanging out with these scoundrels. It was obvious he was a friend of these people. He wasn't, he wasn't just there to lecture them. He was sitting among them. He was eating and drinking with them. The Pharisees were appalled and said, why does he eat with such scum? Jesus' answer tells us a lot. He agrees with them. He essentially says, you're right. These are sick, hurting, troubled people, and they need the healer. They're under the power of the enemy, trapped in the kingdom of darkness, and they need to be freed and brought into the kingdom of God. He says, I haven't come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who think, who know that they are sinners. So it's my belief that one of the fundamental purposes God has for us in this life is that we would come to the end of ourselves, we would fall at the foot of the cross, and we would live in complete and utter dependence on him. God will use everything in our lives to get us to that point where we absolutely realize our need and our dependence on him. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, I think describes this well. It says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray one was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest 
in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So our message this morning is the breakthrough of grace. As followers of Jesus Christ, we experience God's grace, but we're also called to extend God's grace. And even into those places we previously never would have gone. Even extending grace to people we previously never would have hung out with. Jesus spent time with people that respectable religious people wouldn't even go near. He defied social convention and he modeled for us how to show love to everyone, regardless of their status, regardless of their reputation, regardless of their sinfulness. The scriptural understanding of this idea is incarnational love. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2 describes it as well. It's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the scripture describes the mystery of the incarnation, that God humbled himself and he took on human flesh. That the infinite creator and the sustainer of the whole universe poured himself into the confines of time and space in the human body. That Jesus took on flesh and skin for us. So there's an interesting story about a four-year-old girl who woke up one night afraid. She was convinced that there were monsters in her room. And so she ran to her parents' bedroom. And her mom tried to calm her down. And then she took her daughter by her hand and walked her back to her room. She turned on the light and she said, you don't need to be afraid. You're not alone. God is here in the room with you. And the little girl said, I know that God is in here. 
but I need someone in here who has some skin. God knew it wasn't enough that we knew that he was everywhere. We needed him with skin on. People today are desperate for love with skin on. For someone to incarnate love to them. Some people will pay $150 an hour to a counselor to just have someone listen to them, to care about them, and to enter into their world. Today, here on the earth, Jesus has skin and can be seen and touched and heard. How? Through his body, the church, in whom he dwells. All throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. We... We are called to incarnate Jesus' love to the people around us. The first way we can do this is to come alongside others. We match their pace, walk in their shoes, and together we walk towards Jesus. Right? The idea is that we don't stand on our pedestal and then we talk down to people. Rather, we come alongside them. We encourage them. We walk with them. Even people who are very different from us. People even who are very far away from the Lord. We meet them right where they're at. We extend God's grace, his love. We put our arm around them. We love on them. And together we turn towards Jesus and we start taking little baby steps towards Jesus. In the words of the great prophet from the 1980s, Paula Abdul, sometimes it's two steps forward, sometimes it's two steps back. Know that song? My cultural references are getting old as I get old. <laughs> but we do it together. We do it in relationship, incarnating the love of Christ with one another. Jesus with skin on. I think most of us would agree uh, with that conceptually. But when it comes to incarnating love to people who are very different from us or who are very far away from Jesus, I think there can be fear. Fear can prevent us from reaching out and showing love to people who are very different from us. It could be people from a different religion or a different race, or perhaps they have different politics. Maybe they are as far away from you on every uh, spectrum as possible. So a common critique of Christians is that we are known more for what we are against than what we are for. And I think there's some truth to that. I'm all for standing up for our convictions, but much of the dialogue that's going on seems to be characterized more by fear than by love. There's an English word that's used to describe what I'm talking about. It was originally a Greek word. Xenophobia. Xenophobia. 
Xenophobia is a fear or a hatred of anything strange or foreign, particularly as it relates to people. So a xenophobe often has a severe dislike of other people from other cultures or perhaps other races or have other beliefs or just people who are very different from themselves. So there's a word in the Bible that turns xenophobia on its head. Philoxenia. It's a Greek word. It means a love of strangers. It is the exact opposite of xenophobia. Philoxenia. In the New Testament, the word is usually translated as the word hospitality. But its meaning goes much deeper than how we typically understand hospitality. The biblical definition of xenophobia, or I'm sorry, philoxenia is an eager, welcoming love of strangers. Even strangers that you might disagree with, even strangers that you might be afraid of. Hebrews 13.2 says, Don't forget to show philoxenia to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Romans 12.13 says, When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice philoxenia. So in both cases, the word philoxenia means to show love to strangers, people who are different from us. Philoxenia and its adjective form philoxenos appear in the New Testament as both a qualification for church leaders as well as a directive for all believers. Showing love to strangers, to people who are different from us, to people who may not look like us, they may not believe like us, They may not act like us. That is mandated by scripture. So this is what Jesus was doing when he was hanging out at Matthew's party. Jesus extended grace to them. Acceptance, open arms, showing love to strangers. Before they had repented. Before they had changed anything about their lives. He was associating with and he was identifying himself with sinners. And that, of course, was at the core of his whole mission. So over the course of my life, I've known lots of unchurched people. And as I've talked with them about why they don't go to church, they'll often tell me that they've had a bad experience with church and they don't want to go back. I think there's something helpful from math, you know, I'm the nerd, I'm gonna bring up math, uh, that can help us understand this better. So imagine a circle. With circles, you're either inside the circle or you're outside the circle. So in math, this is called bounded set, okay? Yes, you got the picture there and the picture's in your, in your bulletin. So if the circle is defined as men, Right? Then I'm in, and if you're a woman, you're not. You're out. Or if the circle is defined as people who grew up in Florida, a smaller circle, then I'm in, and I'm guessing most of you would be out. Oh, we got one back there. All right. So as we keep going with circles, our circles eventually only include us. Right? 
Now imagine a point instead of a circle. In this case, we'll say the point is Jesus, and we'll use the cross to represent Jesus. Okay? Everyone else is neither in nor out. Rather, we're either close to Jesus or we are far away from Jesus. And we're either moving closer to Jesus or we're moving away from Jesus. This is called centered set. Okay? Now we can use these to describe two different ways of thinking about the church. Okay? In a bounded set, you're either inside of it or you're outside of it. Okay? You're either a Christian or you're not. You're either a really mature Christian or you're not. Okay? You might feel like a second-class citizen in some cases. These boundaries are typically defined by beliefs and by behaviors. So do you believe like I do and do you behave like I do? And if suddenly you start believing or you start behaving differently, you can find yourself outside of the circle. Many people who left the church were people who suddenly found themselves outside the circle. When that happens, people typically leave. They might leave church altogether, or they might go start a new church down the road. Such thinking is often what's behind church splits or the starting of new denominations. On the other hand, let's look at it from the centered set perspective. Okay, so again, let's say the center is Jesus. The issue now is how close or how far away from Jesus are you? And not only that, but in what direction are you moving? Okay, I might be very close to Jesus right now, but my arrow is moving away from Jesus. While someone else might be currently very far away from Jesus, but his arrow is starting to turn towards Jesus and move towards Jesus. So in this case, the person who is far away from Jesus but moving towards him is arguably better off than me, who might be close to Jesus, and I'm enjoying the benefits of that, but I'm currently moving away from Jesus. Get it? So the centered set model can leave us wondering this question, right? You hear this and you're like, Okay, I hear you, but are you saying that there isn't a boundary, like saved versus unsaved? Or are you saying someone can lose their salvation? Is that what you're suggesting? I'm not suggesting there isn't a boundary, and I'm not suggesting that someone can lose their salvation. What I'm suggesting is that only the Lord knows where that boundary line is. Okay, it is not our place to define who is in and who is out. God knows the condition of our hearts. It is our place to love people into the kingdom, to come alongside people and help them turn towards the center, Jesus, right? And walk with them toward him. So I want to explore this idea a little further of coming alongside people who are different from us, extending grace and love to those people. So another model I found helpful over the years is the angle scale. So it kind of looks like a number line, 
right? I'm all about the math here, right? But I think it's helpful. Uh, no homework after this message. Uh, so it kind of looks like a number line. Remember you were taught that in grade school with positive numbers on your right, negative numbers on your left. Except instead of a zero in the center, uh, there's the cross, okay? So the angle scale describes a person's receptivity to the gospel, their conversion, and their subsequent growth in Christ. So a person who is a negative 10 on the angle scale is pretty antagonistic to the idea of the gospel. They really don't want to have any uh, discussion about your religion, right? They may have been hurt by the church. They may have seen hypocrisy, okay? So a negative five on the scale might be less antagonistic to the gospel. A person who's a negative one um, might be open to spiritual conversations. They're beginning to discover that they have this God-shaped hole in their soul. They're wondering what's going to fill that hole up, right? They might be exploring different religions, different pathways. At church, they wanna, they, they wanna hang out before they necessarily sign up and believe, right? Then a person gives their life to Christ. They don't know yet what all that means. They may have never opened a Bible in their life. They may have never prayed out loud. They might still be struggling with addictions. Then as we get up to two, three, four, we see people growing in Christ. They're learning how to read their Bible. They're learning how to pray, right? They're in community with other people, being honest, vulnerable. They're beginning to demonstrate more of the fruit of the Spirit, right? They're becoming more loving, joyful, peaceful, those kinds of things. Their family members are beginning to notice changes in these people. And as they move further along on that scale, now they're allowing Jesus to be Lord of more of their life, their time, their money. They're starting to give. They're starting to tithe. They're starting to think and live more missionally. They're starting to be able to tell the difference between what is eternal and what's temporal. What impact can they make? What legacy can they make that will outlive them? Like, how can they leave behind a legacy that will make an impact for the kingdom of God? They're beginning to see their family, their workplace, their neighborhood as the mission field. Perhaps they're starting to form a ministry of some sort inside the church or outside the church. In some cases, they may be exploring a pastoral calling. But that whole process begins with people who are far away from Jesus being shown love and grace by his followers. It's you and I willing to show love to strangers, people who are different from us. Maybe they are very different from us. One author called this stealth evangelism. It is loving on people so much that they finally ask you, why are you so nice to me? So if you have relationship with a person who's a negative 10 on that angle scale, it can take a whole lot of showing love and grace 
Um, and them seeing Christ's love in you before that person ever gets to the point where they want to have a spiritual conversation. If you were to start proselytizing to them, uh, they would get the sense that you saw them as a project. Um, or you were trying to manipulate them into joining your little club. Okay? No, you were trying to extend grace and love to them because they too were created in the image of God. Jesus loves them and he died for them too. It's also the whole sowing and reaping principle. One person sows, another reaps. So you may be one of a hundred people who show Christ's love to someone before they're willing to come to faith in Christ. So sometimes, even if our hearts are in the right place, we get it wrong. Uh, maybe you were on the other side of that. Like some Christian came to you some point in your life and you got the distinct impression that uh, not that they wanted to extend grace and love to you, but that you were their project. Okay, they were just trying to add another notch on their belt. Maybe you felt looked down upon. Maybe you felt judged. You certainly didn't feel loved. If that is the case, on behalf of the church, Big C Church, the church everywhere, I want to apologize. Thankfully, the Lord has grace for us all. And people sometimes come to faith in Christ despite our efforts. Okay, so this idea of building relationships with people who are far away from Christ is the whole idea behind um, what I call common interest groups. Okay, so my, if you haven't, I think you all know this, you've all read my uh, resumes and answers to all of your questions and things, so you probably know way more about me than I know about you, but I'm, I'm learning. But one of my, sort of my wheelhouse of ministry, like the thing my, uh, that I'm just really passionate about is discipleship in small groups. Uh, I've been leading discipleship in small groups for 18 years now. I've led several small group conferences. I've coached many other small group pastors, and I'm pretty passionate about spiritual growth and about groups. So several of you know uh, and have asked me, like, um, when we're going to get more small groups going here. It's coming. Give me some time. Uh, this is only my fifth week being here. Um, so anyway, one type of small group that I really love is the common interest group. Okay, so over the years at my last church, um, we had car groups, we had motorcycle groups, sports groups, volleyball, softball various fitness groups, we had a martial arts group, we had a firearms group. Got a cool story about that one. Like they had their meetings on Monday nights and they'd all bring in their guns. They weren't allowed to bring ammunition onto the property, but they could bring their guns. And we just, it just so happened that we had, um, we had a conference on that same night with a Muslim speaker and, and all these Muslims are coming in and like they see all these people coming in with rifles. <laughs> it, was, 
It was a uh, logistical hmm, snafu, you know. <laughs> Things you don't consider when you're booking rooms and stuff, you know. So, <laughs> anyway, we've had hunting groups, fishing groups, board games, even online gaming groups. And the idea with these groups is that Christians would use their interest in something to build relationships with unchurched people who wouldn't normally attend a church service. They certainly wouldn't come to your Bible study, um, but they would come hang out over this shared interest kind of thing. Um, and I tell common interest group leaders, like, don't turn this into a prayer meeting, right? You can pray for them, but just do it before you get there. Don't turn it into a Bible study, right? You're simply using your interest to build relationships with people, especially unchurched people. So we would often see people in these groups um, eventually start coming to church, give their life to Christ, get baptized. So they work. So I used to lead one of these groups uh, at my last church. I'm going to tell you, confess to you what it was. You're not going to judge me, right? Okay. So it was a UFC watching group. Yeah, because I love UFC, okay? Ultimate fighting, mixed martial arts, all that kind of stuff, all right? Maybe you hired the wrong guy, but that's me. All right, so my friend hosted one of these nights uh, in, at his house, and he invited several of his uh, neighbors who, who don't go to church, okay? So I'm sitting on the back deck, you know, we're eating our steaks, um, hanging out before the fights start. They usually start right at nine. And uh, just talking to these guys, right? So like every other sentence comes out of their mouths, like a curse word or some kind of sexual innuendo, right? I'm not there to judge. Just there hanging out, meeting these guys right where they're at, getting to know them. But And uh, so... I try to avoid this question as long as possible, but eventually it finally comes up. And I'm not gonna lie, when you ask me a direct question, they said, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and so I told them. And uh, they both looked at me like deer in headlights, <laughs> eyes like saucers, and you can see they're mentally replaying everything they said <laughs> to me right? And I'm trying my best to just put them at ease, right? I'm like, it's okay, man. I'm just, I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to watch the fights, hang out, and have a good time. And so it ends up being a great evening, right? We're all laughing. Camaraderie is good. The fights are good. So incarnational love. First is meeting people right where they are at. It is not judging them. It is just accepting them right where they're at, okay? So again, this word philoxenia, showing love to strangers. It may be that guy in your neighborhood who still swears continually or he has sexual innuendo in every other sentence. It may be that Muslim family on your block. It may be that atheist that you know from work. It may be the person who is the complete opposite of you politically. 
Like everything you feel passionate about, they are the opposite. We are called, according to, to Scripture, to show grace and love to them. Paul says in Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. 4.15, right? You know this, you've heard this, speak the truth in love. But too often, we Christians don't spend the time building a bridge of trust and love and relationship before we cart that truth over to people. Most churches, uh, most people in churches make the mistake of not building that bridge of relationship and trust and love before they uh, drop that truth bomb on people. Literally feels like you just dropped a, a bomb on me. Um, and we often do that with people we have no or very little relationship with. One of the cool things I've learned is that the Holy Spirit is already actively working in the lives and the hearts of unbelievers all over the place. He is already at work in people's lives. We just need to be sensitive to that. God will give us plenty of opportunities to show love and grace to people, especially to those people who are far away from him, especially those people who are very different from us. We just need to be sensitive to where the Holy Spirit is already working and then come alongside him. If we ask him, the Holy Spirit will give us uh, an opportunity to show love, He'll give us a word of encouragement to share with that person. He'll give us an opportunity to serve them. So I want to encourage you this week to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to show you one person, preferably someone who is very different from you, and find a way to show them love or to speak a word of encouragement or to serve them in some way. We want to practice philozenia, an eager, welcoming love of strangers. Because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we want to extend the grace that he has given us, that Jesus Christ has given us, especially to those who are very far away from him even if they are very different from us. There are plenty of people in this world who feel like they have no hope. They're in dark places. They feel alone. They feel afraid. And they need to know the hope that you have. The new life. They need to see that. They need to see that new life in you. They need to see that love and that grace. Because without it, they have no hope. Maybe you're not an evangelist. But you can use whatever gift you have to love on people. Right? If that's hospitality, if it's words of encouragement, 
if it's your serving gift, there's a whole world out there of people who are in the word of Psalm, words of Psalm 40, who are in the mud in the mire. And they need to be lifted up and have their feet set on a rock and given a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can experience your grace and then extend that grace to others. God, I pray for some cool stories of people who are far from you being loved on by those of us here at Life Church. I pray we would become known not for our boundaries, but for our heart to come alongside those who are far away from Jesus as we incarnate the love of Christ to them. That we would be known for our eager, welcoming love of strangers. Lord, that we would begin building bridges of relationship and love with those who are different from us and those who need Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.